Welcome, Dr. James Beckett, Sports Card Insights, here with John Keating. Thanks, sponsors. Beckett Media, Beckett Grading, Beckett Authentication, ComC.com, Burbank Sports Cards, Mike Stadium Sports Cards, Heritage Auctions, Huggins Scott Auctions, Tops, Panini, and Upper Decks. So John Keating, question master. You've been on before. This is not a duel. This is you pummeling me with question after question. I do know your first question was about the Baseball Card Hall of Fame and having a certain other wing for that. So hit me with that first question and we'll be off. I, I asked you about what I consider the greatest common card ever made, the Herb Washington 1975 Tops pinch runner card. I just think that's a beautiful card for many reasons. You have a player that Scored runs, stole bases, never once picked up a batter glove. What are your thoughts about players like that? It's a short list. <laughs> Herb he would stand alone, except he was I, pinch running. My guy like that, I think, is Spook Jacobs. Undistinguished career, a politically incorrect name, utility infielder for the Philadelphia A's back in the early mid-50s. First card I ever got, so that's my excuse. Herb Washington, I'm sorry, John, he has not made my wall of fame, but he's... <laughs> He epitomizes the person that had, I don't even know what he called a career for somebody that never came up to bat. And He's got two cards. Bat. Two cards, remember. 75 and a 75 mini. Right. Okay, fair enough. But I like your idea of, of either almost Hall of Famers or anti-Hall of Famers. Okay. Uh, and notorious or some notoriety. So There's I, one right behind you. Dave Parker belongs in the Hall of Fame. I consider him uh, first in line in the foyer. Cobra. Absolutely. Yep, for sure. Okay. You mentioned the supply chain problems over the last 15 months. Right. And the way you approached it, especially with the card companies and the card cutting, distributing, packing out card Monday and graph converting, you mentioned the shortage of raw materials and globe just-in-time kinds of delivery. But labor, I think, John, was the biggest problem. Down here in Texas, where some of those are, they, they, they couldn't come to work for a few weeks. Right. And, so that, and, and I know from my days of being involved in the printing industry, you miss that printing window or everything is so scheduled out. It just has a ripple effect through the whole business. So it wasn't the price of lumber. It was the fact that people could not go to work or some people maybe didn't even go back to work. I think there are people that have opted out. I think they've been shorthanded. You can't instantly hire for jobs like that that are specialized. So Real quick on that, can we correlate the fact that we can't get top loaders and stuff like that to the PPE where people instead were making shields and all that stuff out of materials? Any of those commodity things, I think we're coming from the, the, the Far East, they, they okay. overseas. I think that's the problem there. It suggests that maybe there should have been some plants here in America, but mainly that was overseas. And there's so many port problems. Yep, for sure. They could be on a boat somewhere. That's been amazing. But who, who could have seen that? Yeah, for sure. Shortage of supplies. You were mentioning the national. Now that you're a podcaster, what's going to be there for podcasters? And there is a radio road. There's they bring in some dedicated fiber or internet to where the people in the Mike Burkus breaking area has over in there. They've all these connected things. And there's some live shows, YouTube podcasts. There'll be some panels. I don't know that you're renting space. Or you just need to know somebody, but there's a whole dedicated area for that that'll have their own dedicated uh, internet. You're one of us, not because of today, but you've got your own podcast. So tell people about your podcast and then what you would hope to do at the National through your podcast. podcast is called That 70s Card Show. I grew up in the 70s, and that to me is the favorite decade to collect. I love the cards. Baseball was king, but the other sports were NFL and NBA where the clouds formed on the horizon and they were pretty big clouds. The NBA and the NFL took the, the, the nation by storm in the 80s and the 90s. I don't currently have plans to go to the national. My last national was 1991 in Anaheim. 
And it's like going to Woodstock. It's hard to top that. Maybe my strategy is I'll be in Chicago three more times between now and the national. My strategy might be to to put money that I have going to the national towards smaller shows where I can get more bang for my buck. So that's my current plan right now. And I'm looking forward to that Huggins and Scott auction at the end of July with not, anticipation. Not bid against me. Trying to divest yourself. I'm trying to grow my collection. So like I said, it's a, a subtraction by addition. But yeah, I, yeah. I, I got a few lots I'm interested in. And again, that's just th- there's 3,000 lots, I think. So I, I doubt yeah, they're yeah. going to do it. But I think this national, 2021, 30 years after Anaheim, might be the first one to really rival that. So you may wish you'd been there, better deals notwithstanding. And there will be a strong podcaster and YouTube presence there. Okay, you asked about founder syndrome. You weren't trying to throw a dart at me. I, I, I could have epitomized that. I, I don't think I did, but, but I was the sole owner. I don't think I'm controlling in one sense, but I really felt I, I understand the industry. I, I know what we need to do. I was the vision caster and a lot of it I could follow through on. But you've got to have some people in your corner that are saying, you're crazy or you're right most of the time, but this time you're missing something. I talk about the examples where everybody disagreed with me and I said, nope, we're going to do it. And it turned out right. But right. there are examples where people said, hey, that's that's not a good idea. And I did it anyway. And and I was wrong. You admit your mistake and you recalibrate, you get back on track. Is If you had people with dissenting opinions, then that's what helps negate founder syndrome, right? If you have everybody agreeing with you all the time. There was a person in our company that uh, was telling people when they got in the company, the way to get ahead in this company is to agree with Jim. He's the boss. Just agree with him. And and that guy all of a sudden is no longer there. Right. <laughs> because right. the last thing I want is yes, men or women. Basically, the way to get ahead is disagree respectfully, not necessarily forcefully, but make your point, back it up. And I, I have people in the industry that I butted heads with that I totally respect. I'm sure I won more than I lost because I was the boss. I wasn't undefeated. There were times when somebody came up and said, hey, I think this is what we need to do. I'd say, I don't think that's going to work because of X, Y, and Z. They'd come back a day later. Hey, I dealt with X, Y, and Z. Now how bad? I'd say, okay, now you're talking. Yes, that's a good strategy. And so founder syndrome can be very insidious if it's the emperor has no clothes and nobody's willing to say, hey, you got no clothes. I had people who would tell me, you got no clothes. <laughs> but it didn't happen very often. But the great part was I had people that cared about me, but they even more perhaps cared about the And there are, many of them are still in the industry now. Checks and balances. You also mentioned Peter Principle. There was a guy, Dr. Peter, who wrote a book about how people tend to keep getting promoted until their last promotion, they're out of gas. They're promoted to a level of incompetence. I certainly had that in a couple of cases with people that, were great salespeople, but when you tried to put them into sales management, they 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 weren't good at that. They were great at sales. What we had, though, in our company, just to bring it back to, to my personal experiences, we tried to make it easy for people to uh, retreat back to their position they were excelling in. We had a guy that got promoted. He was miserable. The people under him were miserable. He'd earned the promotion. It wasn't that, but he, he didn't like it. In many companies, you say, well, you're out. <laughs> Right. You can't go back to where you were because we already put somebody in that spot. And that person hadn't done anything wrong. So you're out. Well, wait a minute. This is one of our very best guys. So we moved him back to where he was and reshuffled things around so that nobody was penalized. To me, that's where the Peter principle, if it's done in a vacuum, it's like everybody eventually gets fired for incompetence. Yep. Uh, yep. Right. That doesn't sound too good. 
Right. I don't know if you're a sole proprietor or, a, or an independent contractor, but that's one of the beauties. If you're an independent contractor, you do the stuff that you're good at. It, job titles don't matter. It's just right. the, the duties. But sometimes the job title, when somebody goes from being a vice president to a president, they have a personality change. So the Peter principle can involve capabilities as well as just perceptions. And one of the wisest things I've heard is make your hiring hard. So your training is easy, right? It sounds to me, I've heard some of your people say they applied and they didn't hear back for months from Beckett. I don't know whether you guys were doing your due diligence or what was happening, but that's the way to go. If you don't put any time in the hiring, then the training and, and the acclimation into the company is going to be more difficult and more problematic for your employees. Good luck that we hired Dave Slipka second time around. He, he was never off our radar. We, we weren't so huge that we didn't recognize potential stars. But I, like I said, I, I think I wasn't real quick to hire. When we filled a void, and we even maybe sometimes would hire the best athlete available, the best person, but to stash somebody away, like the Dodgers tried to stash Roberto Clemente in the Montreal, those kind of things, when the time came, we knew we had some people out there that we wanted to hire that we knew were really going to be good, and we were delighted that they were still available. Okay. It's about manufacturing with card companies. They typically design according to their supplies or that they supply according to the design? What they call the stock. Action. I'm talking about, you they're know, I know they, of, they're not going to run out of paper. They're not going right. to run out of chrome. Uh, they're going to run out of autographs. They're going to run out of, of game used materials and things like that. That's why kid products I'm suggesting are minimum on the autographs and the uh, stuff like that. But serially numbering cards is not that expensive. That's not where the cost is. Even design, I think bad design costs as much as good design. So do good designs and, and generally they are, but it's the uniforms. Although I would say there's a lot more uniforms out there. Guys are wearing a new uniform every game or every quarter or every half or every inning. I don't know. So I remember seeing the Reading Phillies playing in old Phillies uniforms right back in the day. The minor league teams would play in the major leagues castoffs. Those uniforms are big bucks. I think the players have gotten tough on the autographs and, and not just on the price, but nobody likes stickers. These card companies right. aren't right. Ridiculous. sticker autographs. No, it's because the players are making a lot of money and it's not a priority for them. Right. Okay. What did you think of your first computerized spreadsheet? Did that go against everything you learned in school? Or I felt like cheating. It yeah. felt like an unfair advantage. I'm back in the pre-computer days doing the old adding machine thing and the old, whatever it is, that big machine thing that did logs. Right. That was, uh, but then I moved into having to program your own stuff. So, and on the university computing center, you could do whatever you wanted to on that on the timeshare aspect. You'd have to you know type in your punch cards, run them through, and, and then get a printout an hour later or whenever it was. Right. When it became personal computers, I had a, a TRS-80 Radio Shack first, then I had a Compact, then I had the IBM PCs of various kinds. Again, I don't want to turn back the clock. <laughs> <laughs> I felt it's like going to heaven. It was blissful to be Put able to pencil, do right? thing that you were going to do. That doesn't mean it didn't make some notes and throw away all paper, but you could do stuff you couldn't otherwise do, and you could do stuff a lot faster and better, so made for a more accurate product, so... Very happy about that. Another quick question about technology, digital photography. When did that start taking over in the card industry? You and I both know you used to have to pick the speed of your film, X amount of frames per roll, right? When I started, it was color separations and all these kind of things. It was analog or whatever the opposite of digital photography is. By the time we had a design department, several years after that, it was greatly streamlined because we used to have to do paste-ups and things like that. And when you got four color process, that's different. A lot of those early years, we were as much black and white as we could except for the covers and these early issues because of that, because it was a headache for a small team to do that cost-effectively. Okay. Later on, you're just sending the digital files. 
But through the 80s, where I was very hands-on, it was challenging. It was difficult. I was driving stuff to the typesetter or to the printer or to the uh, composer, whatever. We, there's so many steps that were all streamlined. And I'm so happy. <laughs> awesome. I'd be up late at night, then have to wake up early in the morning or not even sleep to get it there so that we so yeah. maintain our deadlines. It was Well, you paid for it, didn't you? That's for sure. Paid for all that, it. All that stress. It was it was a lot of time. Yeah. You don't really get credit for your time. I haven't worked by the hour for a long time, but the IRS doesn't care about how much time you spend, but collectors do. They care that you're timely and on time. I keep hearing about, and I don't own any Venezuelan cards. Did anybody ever make a trip to Venezuela that you know of? Yes. Okay. In fact, if you go to the National, I'll tell you exactly where to go to see all my <laughs> cards. It's a first table. He and other people over the years, their connection originally was Chico Carascal, the shortstop of the White yep. Sox. And he opened up and there had been a whole bunch of shortstops from Venezuela. But the cardboard was, you barely even see anything above a four. They're yeah. generally really bad condition, a lot of stuck in albums, but they're they're different cards, some different designs. I've got some Clemente Venezuelan cards. They're really cool. They're really you cool. think there's still some hiding out down there when the, when the country opens up down yeah, there? I'm sure there are, but there have been numerous trips down there. Okay. Um, I never hear about that. It's good to know that. They're not going to tell you about it, John. It's, they're <laughs> stealth trips. And, and frankly, I don't know, the government probably wouldn't like it now or then, but it, you you can't go down there on your own. You've got to have not just an interpreter, you speak Spanish, but you, you have, to have a guide. You yeah. be an outsider. You've got to be somebody yeah. that's opening doors for you. Those areas have been mined with the, the, the various buying trips. My buying trips pretty much were in the continent. I was in Hawaii, right. got some great cards in Hawaii. I guess I got a bunch of 52 top sign numbers in, in Canada too. Venezuela, you'd have some customs issues, potentially even coming back, but yeah. Maybe too late, John, but not yeah. to go to the National and stop at John Ramirez's table. He's got a fabulous collection. I've traded with him and done deals with him for 45 years. A collector of the highest order. I wish you well in your podcast. I'm having fun listening to it. That 70s card show. So thanks, John Keating. Thanks, listeners. Have fun at the National and see you tomorrow. The man in the house who calls.